The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture series is presented to a live audience and provides insight into leadership and war fighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us educate future military leaders and the public. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this presentation are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the Army Heritage and Education Center. So ladies and gentlemen, today is October 13th, 2022, and on behalf of the team here at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and the staff of the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the USAC's annual General of the Army Omar Nelson Bradley Memorial Lecture. Uh, we welcome, we're welcoming listeners from all over the world through our uh, live stream of, uh, feed tonight. For those of you who are listening online, uh, remember that you can submit a question through the, the question and answer uh, uh, chat room at the end of our lecture. Uh, so just type that in and we'll add them to the queue when we get to that point. Um, so tonight it's my uh, honor to introduce uh, Dr. Conrad Crane, who's going to introduce our speaker tonight. He's the senior research historian for the U.S. Army War College's Strategic Studies Institute. So Dr. Crane. Thank you. My, my mic is on. Uh, I am I'm here tonight in my role as Vice President of the Omar and Bradley Foundation. Been in that role for almost 20 years. During that time, the Omar Bradley Foundation has given over $1 million in grants and fellowships, mostly for Army and military officers to pursue education in mathematics and history. It, it was the conditions of Mrs. Bradley's will when she died in 2004. The, uh, the foundation that supports a number of causes, also is designed to further the memory of the Bradleys and, and causes that they supported when they were alive. Uh, it is administered by, the, the president is uh, Jeff Mangelsdorf, who is also the director of AHEC. Uh, the, the advisors come from West Point and, and all over the War College. And uh, again, it's, it's been an honor to serve with the foundation. We've done a lot of very good things. And this lecture is one of the things we do every year. And I must say that I'm very, uh, I just came, I'm, I'm in the process, I just come off COVID protocols today, just to let you know. I, I took the grandkids to Disney World and my souvenir I brought back was COVID. Uh, so I'm not gonna be here real long but I did want to do this introduction. I've been trying to get Dr. Nolan here to give a lecture for about three years. I heard him give a presentation on his book at the National World War II Museum and was struck about what he was presenting was not, that the way that wars normally go was completely counter to the way that the Joint Staff was planning to fight a future war. Uh, you'll hear his talk tonight uh, it basically, if I was going to summarize this thesis, it's the fact that any time you have a, a war between peers and, near, peers, and, peers and near peers, you end up with a war of attrition. Wars are not quick. Battles do not decide things. It's a long war of attrition. And we're watching this play out in Ukraine right now. And I know Dr. Nolan's book is getting more and more attention in Washington. I've been pushing it myself in a number of different venues. I actually think it's the most important book I've written in the last decade for uh, those people involved in national security studies to read because it really talks about the dynamics of war, how they get out of control, and how, again, if you, you've got to be prepared for a war of attrition, for a long war. 
Uh, but I still hear talking to Pentagon of winning the first battle and how that somehow we're going to fight the Chinese, the Russians very quickly. Uh, history tells us it's just not going to happen. Um, I mean, heck, we just spent 20 years in Afghanistan, and Afghanistan was not, wasn't even close to being a near peer. So it, it just the realities of warfare are such that you must be prepared for a lot of what's going on with watching Ukraine on our televisions every day. So while setting the book up that way, let me, let me introduce Dr. Nolan. Cathal J. Nolan is director of the International History Institute at the Pardee School of Global Studies and professor of history at Boston University. In 2022, he was appointed a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a Progress History Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and a party Research Fellow at Boston University's Party Center for the Study of Long-Range Future. He's the author of 14 books on diplomatic and military history, The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Are Won and Lost. Some copies are still available for sale outside and a very good deal, a paperback deal. Received the Gilder Lehrman Prize in Military History in 2017 and was the first recipient of the Distinguished Book Award from the very influential uh, web post, War on the Rocks. His study of ethics and mercy in combat and counterinsurgency, mercy, humanity, and war, will be published by Oxford sometime this year. His, his bio has a whole little list of things that he has done. He's lectured all over the world. The one I'm curious about is he ran a training course for young diplomats at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Kabul, Afghanistan in 2011. I'd kind of like to hear what that one was like sometime. Uh, he consults on military history for the PBS science series Nova. He is a principal military history advisor to the American Heritage Museum. His teaching has won multiple awards at different universities. Uh, he is currently writing two more books, War Myths for Oxford University Press and War, What Is It Good For? Interesting title. But again, I, I am really, I wanted to do this introduction. I feel really pleased that we finally were able to get Dr. Nolan here. Uh, and I really hope you'll listen to the message he's giving us. It's, it's uh, War's a messy business. It rarely ends the way we think it's going to end. And uh, again, I, I, I think our watching what's going on in Ukraine, our military planners are becoming more and more aware of our own shortcomings and the, the way we've got to create a much more robust national security establishment for a much different kind of war than we would like to fight. With that, let me introduce Dr. Nolan. Shake your hand, but you've got COVID, so <laughs> thank you. Good evening. Um, I really prefer when I'm introductions lowball it, but uh, okay. Um, I'm deeply honored uh, to be asked to speak to this audience uh, in this place. Uh, let me start with a caution about what you will hear. As you all certainly know, uh, General Omar Bradley famously and wisely said that amateurs study tactics and professionals study logistics. I do not pretend to know much about tactics or maneuver warfare. I am only a civilian observer of war, not a military professional. I have walked through many dead war zones and a few live ones, but I've never fired a shot and I've only ever seen war through a glass darkly. I therefore leave tactics and operations to professionals. My observations are about the gray area between operations and strategy, 
or, and this was a shocking thing to, for me to discover uh, and then to write about when I was working on the book and to tell students who don't really believe me, um, that as far as I can tell, in the majority of wars uh, in history, uh, they are begun uh, without any true war-winning strategy uh, in the pocket. Uh, more cases than most of us think. Uh, one side or the other does not have a strategy to win and has to work one out and develop it, uh, learning how to fight by fighting. I will say this, that even many military professionals mistakenly think that being good at tactics and operations, being the very best, is enough to win at war. I don't think it is. More importantly, history says it is not. Professionals plan for decisive battles, except that, as you all know, as you've probably all quoted, and you certainly know, Mulk the Elder said, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. I remind you that his direct successors on the Prussian great general staff and then the German great general staff, his direct successors spent several decades then planning to win fast in 1914, uh, right before they got bogged down in a war of attrition that they lost badly. My argument is not that battles, and I'll put in parenthesis, or generals, are unimportant, but that both are less important than is usually said in military histories. In most cases, my argument is, the main effect of even the largest battles, even the most famous battles, is to accelerate attrition, which is the underlying factor that decides the outcome of the war. History repeatedly warns that you better have a plan B for the long war that's going to follow after your plan A for a short war fails, as it almost surely will. Great states are just too powerful to be defeated in a decisive battle or a decisive campaign, a string of battles. And yet war planners, I think, far too much influenced by Clausewitz keep thinking that is their main purpose. This observation, if it's correct, is even more true of grand coalitions that go to war. Now, many in this room will play leading roles in wars to come. Given the times, given the current international system, you will wage those wars at the head of a coalition. You will also lead in those wars against enemies that are also members of a coalition, if only as the leading proxy of that coalition. And coalition war is long war. Even smaller powers, peasants with AK-47s and RPGs, weapons from just after the end of the Second World War, have shown that they can defeat the greatest military powers if they can endure attrition and also inflict it on their enemy. The Viet beat the French and then the Americans, the Afghans beat the Soviet Union, and then NATO. Winning decisively in war is the aspiration of all professional military, and it is a main subject of concern to military historians, and yet winning decisively is the single hardest thing to do, to translate combat into lasting political outcomes and achievements. For most of history, wars among empires and among other great powers have been far more than the usual tale in the military history books of major battles named, worshipped, venerated, 
monuments and statues raised to them, or just discussed over wine and dinner as wrote shorthand for far more complex outcomes. Wars among the major powers have not been waged over a hard red day or a single summer's campaign. A rare few were. I'm not claiming to have discovered some iron laws of history that predict and describe all outcomes. No, there are exceptions. There always are. But most wars, most big wars certainly, were long contests of endurance that could span not just years, but decades and several, a century or more. Why? Because most often, war's results are not decisive. They are clouded. Neither full triumph nor final defeat. Most wars end in gray outcomes where the lack of clear geopolitical or strategic resolution means they happen all over again as irresolution encourages renewed war and war begets more war. We fight to force some great decision on an enemy, but we fall short. We pause to recover and rearm. Then we fight all over again and again and again. We are, right now, over 40 years into a long war in the greater Middle East that started in Iran in 1979. Iran-Iraq. It is quite possible, I don't know, none of us know, but it is quite possible that in Ukraine we are only at the start of a new 30 years war, or 80 years war, or 100 years war. Certainly the hate is going to be there enough to sustain it for 100 years on the Ukrainian side if those borders don't go back. We tend to view World War II as the model of how wars end and what they mean. World War II, which ended in total victory on one side and total defeat on the other. It's not the right model to look at. In fact, World War I represents the far more common outcome in history. A war among the great powers that ended in indecision. So indecisive an outcome despite 12 million dead that it then became the major cause of World War II. There are historians beginning to use the phrase, I would like to use it, but I think it just confuses people, the 30 years war of the 20th century, 1914 to 1945. The arch being German ambition that connects the two. Exhaustion of morale, exhaustion of materiel, rather than finality through battle, battles, I should say, has marked the end game of most modern wars, and almost always of the largest wars among the major powers in any given era. Certainly go back 500 years with this, but if you want, you can go back further. They almost always ended up as coalition wars, meaning extraordinary attritional contests drawn out over time. My main thesis is that, with rare exceptions, so-called decisive battles have not actually decided the protracted wars that host them and that we point to as the cause of the outcome. Major wars were, almost every time, instead fought to moral and material exhaustion. Yeah, I'll say it. I think military history gets this mostly wrong. I think we should better think of war not as a boxing match, where we're looking for the knockout blow. Think of it instead as a sumo wrestle, 
where we managed to stay upright on aching legs just long enough for the other guy to exhaust and fall down first. A closely related thesis, this one gets me in trouble, <laughs> a closely related thesis that people really don't like for reasons I find both culturally interesting but also confirmatory of what I'm saying, is that better generals might win you a battle. They do not usually win your war. I'll go further. There is no such thing as genius in modern war, either in fact or in the way that Clausewitz dwelled at length. Not unless we want to say that bureaucratic mobilization of entire populations for fighting is the form that genius takes in the modern era. And yet, traditional military history and most modern military theory still presents big battles, the search for the culminating moment, the fulcrum moment of battle, as what will decide when wars are won and lost, when their empires or ideologies or civilizations will rise or fail. Military imagination has been fixed, at least since Napoleon, and I think largely due to Clausewitz, on tactics and operations. And being so fixed, we miss the deeper story of how victory is actually achieved, or if it can be achieved. We miss the deeper role in war's outcomes of social organization, shared moral commitment, long war logistics, industrial capacity, bureaucracy, propaganda, national morale, and economic and military management. More than generalship, management. We miss that in the end, and nearly every time, all our plans break down, and the short war delusion shatters as we are forced into long war attrition. Now, even if you think it doesn't matter what the public believes, and there are people who believe, think that, we still have a problem. For this older view, what I've called the allure of battle, still seduces war planners and decision makers with the idea that war can be quick and sharp, Frederick's phrase, to be won by tactics or technology or operational skill right at the beginning. It's also because we have all been taught that we should praise, praise battle as heroic and despise attrition as morally vulgar. Attrition, we are told, we are taught, think of all the histories of the First World War. Attrition, we are told, lacks redemptive heroism. It takes too long, it costs too damn much, and mothers won't stand for it. A resonant political fact. We fear to find indecision and tragedy without any uplift or morality in the trenches, in the roll calls of the dead that accumulate over years of bloody effort. And therefore, we historians have raised battles to the summit of heroic propaganda, and we write up generals at levels of genius that real history simply does not support. Too much military history celebrates even failed battle campaigns as full of glory and genius. And the books are still being written in this manner after the carnage of the 20th century. Prussia is wrecked, and Frederick is the greatest of Germans. France is beaten, and an age is named for stunted 
Louis XIV. Francis beaten again, and another age we deem Napoleonic. Europe lies in ruin in 1945, and too many historians, even today, still say that the German generals displayed genius with the Panzers. Now, we may agree or not, excuse me, we may agree or we may not that some wars were necessary and just. Either way, we should look straight at the grim reality that victory was most often achieved in the biggest and most important wars by attrition, and I may be blunt, by mass slaughter, not by soldiers' heroics or a singular genius in command. The man on horseback, Bolivar, Napoleon, Washington. Winning at war is much harder than that. It takes longer, longer than those who launch the first battle plans, hope or conceive. Marathon, Kanai, Agincourt, Austerlitz, Tannenberg, Kursk, even Jian Bien Phu. Place names that conjure in the mind grand military victory and defeat, hinged moments, turning points, great wars, caught inside an amber word. And yet, winning lopsided battles such as those, and they were all lopsided, did not ensure victory in the wars that contained them. It seems to me, it always seemed to me, as I was writing the book, an obvious point, but it turns out it is often missed. Hannibal won at Cannae, Henry V won at Agincourt, Napoleon won at Austerlitz, and Hitler won spectacularly at Kiev, where he took 650,000, his troops took 650,000 prisoners. Then Carthage lost to Rome, England lost to France, Napoleon lost to the Grand Alliance, and Hitler lost it all, utterly and catastrophically. In each case, the short war delusion stretched into long war reality, defeat by attrition. There were exceptions. Molk the Elder won at Konigratz and at Sedan, baleful victories that I think did a great deal of damage to both German thinking and wider military thinking. So much damage that the entire German officer corps around 1890 and the entire German political class and much of its intellectual class as well, insofar as they mattered, dismissed Molk when he spoke to the Reichstag and he warned directly, don't try it. You cannot replicate my victories of the 1850s and the 1860s. The world has changed. Our victory has changed. We will now be facing a coalition in any war we start. Don't try it. The Germans tried anyway. The general staff tried anyway. They failed in 1914. They tried it again and failed again in 1941. I'm not saying that there is no room for leadership in war. That would be silly. I'm not saying that it all comes down to battalions and brigades and just slugging it out. But I do think we should stop talking about commanders of genius, both in the popular usage and popular military histories and in the way that Clausewitz dwelled. There are no geniuses in modern war. And even if there are, war is too complex for even a genius to control.
historians' claims, the generals' plans, the decision-makers' desire to win fast by decisive battle by what we sometimes call Clausewitzian genius, distances our understanding from real war's immense complexity and contingency, which I think are its greater truths. I'll repeat, I know I'm getting repetitive. Most modern wars started in short war hubris, short war delusion, seduced by the idea that a singular decisive battle, which our skill, which is greater than the enemy's, will surely bring, then turned into long wars of exhaustion, in which the deciding outcome was who could endure more. The largest wars were won in the end, not by any genius general seeking out battle, as Clausewitz recommended, the whole culminating point, the whole purpose of war. Instead, they were won by the weight of materiel, married to a clear political purpose that guided a long war-winning strategy. Let me put it somewhat differently. Victors actualized their latent material advantages in a will to make long war a will that was joined to a deep moral capacity to also endure terrible losses. More often than not, the victor suffered early defeats and then came back to fight again and again and again. Think of the British in World War II as compared to the Japanese. Spectacular early victories, ultimate defeat. Let me step right in it. It is the ability to absorb initial defeat and fight on that surpasses operational dexterity and the genius for maneuver, if that exists. No general is as important as this capacity to endure. Not Hannibal, who lost to Rome's strategic depth, which absorbed all of his blows and then launched an invasion of his homeland across the water. Not Scipio, who used Rome's logistics to erode Carthage in Iberia and only then crossed over to Africa and attacked the homeland. Not Robert Lee, who wasted Confederate strength in two invasions of the North in 1862 and 1863. Not even Ulysses Grant, who understood better, who learned to win by accepting attrition and making hard war, supported in that choice by Lincoln, who had also grown much more hard. Not Rommel, Manstein, Zhukov, or Montgomery. Not even the always battle-seeking and ultimately twice defeated and twice exiled. Napoleon mattered as much as the underlying erosion by attrition that decided all of those wars. Napoleon, I'm going to commit sacrilege here, Napoleon never understood that winning a battle, a day of battle, is not enough. You have to win the campaign, and then the year, and then the decade. Meanwhile, your enemy is reforming and learning, and a coalition is coming together that you are provoking into existence. It's, it's such an old pattern in history. It's incredible how often it has repeated. Victory must... Only, it can only be victory if it ushers in political permanence of your objectives. Napoleon thought his talent was enough. His individual talent was enough. So he only ever looked ahead to winning the next battle or at most the next campaign. 
He lost it all because he never understood the role of attrition in Spain. And then he was outthought and he was outfought in Russia in 1812. He was outthought and outfought again in Germany and France in 1813 and 1814. Waterloo is mostly British propaganda. Waterloo was not the moment of decisive defeat for Napoleon, which had arrived a year earlier. Waterloo was his anticlimax. There were 500,000 additional Allied troops already marching for the borders of France when the Battle of Waterloo was fought that June day. Win at Waterloo, win again after Waterloo, win two or three more battles, and France was still going to lose. It was exhausted, it was worn out, and it had had enough of war. And the Allies were determined to be rid of this man of war for once and for all. Napoleon's enemies had refused, especially the British, but not just the British, had refused to accept that defeat in battle meant defeat in war. They came at him over and again in wearing campaigns and then deliberate attrition in Russia, sorry, in Spain, and then in Russia, in Spain for five years, in Russia for about five months. They were planning a two-year campaign of attrition, but he lost too quickly <laughs> for that to take place. Britain hardly ever fought a big battle in the Napoleonic Wars, but it won the wars as part of an anti-French coalition which Napoleon had provoked into existence, which France and then Napoleon had provoked into existence. Germans studied Napoleon even more closely than the French did, and they repeated his errors, his main error, because they so fixated on tactical and operational dexterity, which they thought, not least because Clausewitz taught at their war college, <laughs> which they thought was the, the key to Napoleon. They misunderstood the core strategic causes of his and France's ultimate defeat, which were also the causes, or would be the causes, of their own. Their 1914 war plan, the Schlieffen Plan, proposed to invade France based on two models, Hannibal at Cannae and Napoleon at Ulm. Who does that? A 2,200-year-old model and a 140-year-old, 100-year-old model, 105-year-old model or so. Um, who does it? Germans. And people who have learned from the German way of war and followed the German way of war and admired the German way of war, which almost always, I remind you, ended in failure from Frederick through Hitler. Their plans all broke down in 1914, and millions of German lads had to then slog it out for four years in the mud and the trenches with no strategy above them to win the long war Germany's leaders had started. None, no strategy, no plan B. We win it all in 45 days, knock out two great powers, in at least one great power in 45 days, then we turn around, move along those railways that we built for this purpose, and we knock out the Russians next. It's hubris on an astonishing scale. General Ludendorff, who by 1916 
was, as you know, partner in what is often called a hidden military dictatorship in Germany. Kaiser's still in power, but it's Ludendorff and Hindenburg that are really running things. General Ludendorff was asked after the war to explain vaunted German operational doctrine. And he said, and I quote, um, we punch a hole and see what develops, end quote. <laughs> How many trees have been felled to praise German operational doctrine? We punch a hole and see what develops? As we Germans, we have a genius for war. That phrase has been used. It's even the title of a book, German Genius for War. They did it again in 1939 against a minor power, and they won, because it was a minor power. They did it again in 1940 in France, and they got lucky. They did it again in 1941 in Russia, and they got what they deserved. Modern wars are simply not won by lightning campaigns, whether they're thunder runs into Baghdad in 2003 or a rapid encirclement of Kyiv in 2022. They are won by moral and strategic capacity to absorb your first losses, followed by grinding it out. And that takes determination and grit and all kinds of courage and morale and propaganda and all those other things I mentioned. Losers usually overestimate the role of main battle force and their own operational dexterity, their brilliance at maneuver warfare. And they underestimate the enemy's strategic depth. And above all, they underestimate his moral capacity to endure repeated losses. I don't even have to say Ukraine, do I? <laughs> Some of these expressions, we're just watching this stuff happen again. If I had to write this book again as a new last chapter, it's Ukraine. It's, 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 it's unbelievable what the Russians have done. I'm sure we'll talk about it. Winners absorb defeat after defeat, but they keep fighting. They overcome the initial surprise, especially if they were attacked by an aggressor. They outlast the enemy's dash and his daring operations. And yet history, sorry, I would say historians prefer strategic offense in the histories that they write. History, I would say, prefers strategic defense. I'll say, I'll close out with a final few words about attrition. I am not arguing for it. Nor am I playing that old game, now it's over 100 years old, started in Germany, but it spread, of arguing for attrition versus annihilation in operational doctrine. I'm not. I'm not qualified to argue that. I will point out that attrition is usually presented to the public, to us, by people like me as an immoral strategy. Attrition is immoral, how can you do that? Unless, of course, you're flicking it on the enemy, then it's fine. It's a tale, here's phrases from histories of the First World War. If you're British, it's a tale of lions led by donkeys. If you're French, it's a tale about chateau generals misunderstanding the bearded ones in the trenches. It's a tale of carnage over courage, of ugly tragedies of entire generations sacrificed to failed tactics that are said to explain the length of the war. What I think is happening there is that we are mistaking the tragedy and core immorality of all war for what is only one of its methods. So forgive me for saying this, and forgive us all if we do it again, and especially if we do it on purpose. But there is a moral argument to be made for attrition. We say that it's wrong, that attrition reduces the soldier to a statistic, and so it does. But so does any large-scale battle. 
20,000 Prussians died, 15,000 for the statistics. And I do think there is as much room for courage and moral character inside attrition as in any larger battle. There was character aplenty on both sides, at Verdun and Iwo Jima, and the Hurtgen Forest, the sacrifices at Shiloh or the Marne, at Stalingrad or Juno Beach or in Donbass, were not mean, small, or morally useless acts. Attrition does not annihilate all moral or human meaning for the men and women who suffer it and carry it out. The courage of endurance in a trench when no one is looking is probably the greatest kind there is. I don't know, I'm outside my area here. But I do know this. In general, popular history reading public, public nationalist audiences in virtually every country I can think of, I can't think of an exception actually, grows restless if they're faced with attrition. They complain that it's appalling because it's slow and wasteful, as if all war is not appalling and wasteful. Therefore, we proclaim that attrition is morally indefensible, and we demand of our generals that they find some way around it. They find some way to operational dexterity, back to the war of movement. Again, those of you familiar with World War I literature, uh, in the centenary years that have just passed, thankfully, <laughs> in some ways, uh, Endless books were written about the restoration of the War of Movement in 1917 and 1918, especially by the British, claiming that they did it first, when in fact it was actually the Russians and then the Germans, British, the French. And by the end, everybody knew how to do war maneuver, and the casualties went way up. Anyway, I'll digress. We grow restless with it. We think it's immoral. We say it's immoral. We teach that it's immoral. And yet attrition was how the Union Army uprooted slavery and Allied and Soviet armies broke Nazism. Attrition is how most wars are won or lost. It is how aggressors are defeated and the world or some part of it is remade for good or for ill. I think we should better accept this reality in our warfighting doctrine and our war-making politics right at the start of the next war. We should explain what's coming. We should explain it to those we send out to fight and those who also serve, who only stand and wait. And then we should choose to fight only the wars we really believe are worth paying so awful a price. And if we decide together that the next war is just or just necessary, we should praise attrition more and the allure of battle less and genius, not at all. Such honesty about how wars are actually fought and won, how long they tend to last, and the real price that we pay to achieve victory in them might even lead us to praise peace more and practice war less. Though I rather doubt it. Thank you. Thank you. That went quicker than I thought. Oh. <laughs>
<laughs> Excellent. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we have plenty of time for questions and answers. I have quite a few that have come in uh, through the chat room online. Uh, so I'd like to thank all of our uh, folks all over the world listening in tonight. Uh, for those want to remind you listening online uh, to please go ahead and type in your questions in the uh, in the message box, uh, and we'll get them in the uh, get them in the lineup and see if we can't get them to uh, Dr. Nolan. But let's go ahead and have our first question tonight right here in the crowd. I've got one over there on the on the side. Uh, they quickly did what? Uh, if uh, a, a war happened and the opponents, the, the one that went quickly, did win quickly, carried out. That has happened. That's what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. The, it, example the example would be the, uh, there are two, and they're Volk the Elder, who then said, don't try and repeat what I did because it's not repeatable. Uh, and that was the uh, Austro-Prussian War, and then uh, in 1866, and followed in 1870 by the Franco-Prussian War. One of the baleful, I think, um, um, lessons of the middle of the 19th century is that the two wars we now look back on and say, aha, portents of war to come, were Crimea and the American Civil War. But I can tell you, and every European military had observers uh, by the end of the Civil War, usually on both sides of each major battle, certainly in the Eastern Theater. Um, and the, we have their reports. I've read most of those reports, uh, you know, Prussians and French and English and so A couple of them you know, sort of got it right and said, oh my God, this is like a real lesson to be learned here. Most of them said, bunch of amateurs. We have nothing to learn from this, nothing. And 50 years later, went out and replicated the last year of the American Civil War and the fish hook around Richmond and the trenches and the attrition and the prison camp deaths and the rising hatred and the destruction of civil society and all of that, only on, 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 you know, on, on a continental-wide basis. But those, there are two, there are others, but those are the two salient ones. And my, what, what I, I think was so unhappy is that, what I'm unhappy about is the American Civil War had ended and then they, the, the Prussians beat the Austrians the next year. And they did it, sometimes called the Seven Weeks War. And everybody went, oh my God, you can knock out a great power. Austria was then a great power, Austria-Hungary uh, was then a great power. Um, you can knock out a great power in a month and a half, in six, seven, eight weeks? How is this possible? Uh, we all have to study what the Germans did. The Americans, amateurs, doesn't matter. The Crimean War, Russians can't fight. They took most of the casualties, and it was in a minor theater, and it wasn't generally, and they ignored those two contests, which we look back and we see those wars ended up in trenches and attrition. And, uh, exhaustion and, and all of that. Instead, they modeled almost every general staff, Prussian, French, uh, others, uh, modeled uh, what they were doing and began to plan for the next war based on the successful example. And so everybody came to the same conclusion. At the very beginning of the war, you marshal everything that you have and you rush it to the front because you have to get there with everything you have or he will and you'll lose the opening campaign and then you're done. And they did, and they rushed to the front, and there were calamitous battles along the frontiers, and so on and so forth. And then it settled in. It settled in for, um, uh, instead of a four-week war or a four-month war, it was a 52-month war. Decided nothing. So we did it all over again. Right. So, sorry. 
All right, sir, we, we've got a question here from the, uh, from the internet. Uh, this is actually coming from one of our teammates uh, here at the War College. Uh, so, sir, with your earlier definition of genius, would you consider General Marshall to be our best example of genius with his victory plan? It's not a word I would use. Was Marshall an extraordinarily uh, competent and successful uh, soldier, administrator, war man? Of course, yes, of course. Um, but uh, genius, genius, the way Clausewitz talks about it and the way people usually mean it, and it's usually a cheap popular use, but um, what they mean is that somebody had uh, a, uniquely, a unique talent for, you know, what's sometimes called the, the French coup d'oeil, you know, the, 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 literally the blow of the eye where you see a battlefield and you just instantly know the machine gun should go over there, the cavalry should be there, and so forth, uh, that there's this natural genius for war. What the Prussians tried to do, um, because Clausewitz had so emphasized that what, look, you, Napoleon was a genius, soldier of his age, the French Alexander. Okay, fine, let's concede all of that. Uh, but you, how do you guarantee that you're going to have a Napoleon at the head of your army or an Alexander? How do, you, how do you guarantee that? And the Prussians said, we have a plan. Sorry, I shouldn't do bad accents. <laughs> we have a plan, and the plan is a great general staff which will study the great lessons of history and the great campaigns of history and the great captains of history, distill their essence into operational lessons and teach it to the officer corps who then went out in stiff Felgrau suits and fought a war of attrition for 52 months. Um, I, don't, I don't use the word genius, but it's a losing campaign, but you know, what the hell. <laughs> I think we have one right here. Thank you. First, um, thank you for your presentation. Very, very much appreciated. My, my question, I'd, I'm curious your perspective. Um, while you're focusing on, uh, I guess the battles and kind of the military side of it. Uh, like your perspective on contemporary American uh, theory of victory, if you will, which in, in, in my view is not really one of victory per se. And I'm talking about the policy kind of uh, paradigm now where it's all about competition, it's about uh, sort of this game theory concept of imposing costs here, imposing costs there, and coming to some sort of political resolution from that. Um, and so you, would, you would prefer a sharp, decisive military? Outcome? No, no, I, I, would not, I would not go that route. I, 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 think that it's, I, I think that your thesis kind of follows um, in, into that realm as well, where that potentially is, is hubris as well. Um, and I'm, and I'm curious if, if you see a, if you see an aspect there, or if, if, if you agree essentially with that with that paradigm. Uh, I'm not really qualified to comment on you know current strategic doctrine. Um, I do think the uh, look if you don't come out of 20 years in Afghanistan and a humiliation greater than Saigon, uh, what 15 months ago. Um, uh, in, in the final scenes, uh, and, and draw some pretty sharp lessons about uh, our military tech, our, our extraordinary technology uh, did not win, our, um, uh, our, 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 our tactics of up the valley and down the valley. I'm talking, I don't know how many uh, officers I spoke who talked about new brigade commander comes in, goes up the valley, kills a lot of Taliban, um, comes back down the valley about 10 or 12, about 10, eight or 10 months into the 12 or 15 month tour, depending on what branch you were in. 
um, uh, is thinking we've got to go about this somewhat differently, and then the brigade goes home, and the new brigade comes in, and the next colonel goes up the valley. I mean, I heard that from multiple sources um, who were, you know, on scene. Um, so uh, those lessons are clearly have to be have to be. By the way, it's also Afghanistan is a repetition of search and destroy tactics in, in Vietnam that didn't work. And um, I just think learning lessons from history in general is really hard. Uh, you know, just think of our, in our own private lives. I mean, it's very difficult to learn lessons from our own failures. It's impossible, I think, almost impossible to learn lessons from someone else's. We're all told that by our parents, you know, you should know, and they never listen. Um, and the lessons learned part, uh, the problem is you have to institutionalize the memory somehow, and that means you better be teaching a lot more military history, I think, uh, and studying yeah, but it's not that, my understanding is, you would know far better than I do, that, that uh, when military history is studied in the academies and West Point and so forth, um, it's studied as a way of sort of uh, operational history of how, do, how was that battle won? How, you know, what was the, uh, the moment of decision? What were the tactics that worked there? They don't, in some ways, they don't really study war. They study battle combat or tactics or operations, but wars are fought, certainly at these levels, wars are fought in terms of economic management and productive and uh, morale and propaganda, and you better understand your own people, and you better actually have a political purpose that's achievable, uh, and you better not have your, not just your politicians, but your whole civil society insist that every outcome of every war we ever fight be again World War II in which we achieve complete dominance and total defeat of the enemy and then remake his country and the world's better. And we get modern Germany and modern Japan and modern Italy. Because that's the model that is mostly in, in, in the minds of, uh, of Americans. Less so Europeans, less so even Canadians, because they slogged it out in World War I in a way Americans didn't. Americans, I mean, that's a forgotten war. I know Korea is always the forgotten war. That's the forgotten war, even with the centenary. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure I'm answering I don't think I am answering your question, so I'll move on to the next question. All right, sir, we have another one from the internet. This is actually a conglomeration uh, representing probably about four or five questions we've gotten on the same topic. Uh, so I'm just gonna go with the first one here. Um, how would you view the advent of social media and in the bigger picture, the internet. The advent of social media? The advent of social media and in the bigger picture, the internet factoring into wars of attrition? Well, I mean, the internet, we're seeing things in Ukraine that, I mean, again, we're just beginning, just observing these things. Uh, there aren't many things that are new in war, but every soldier with a phone recording everything, a GPS location of precise, you know, web, uh, shell strikes, this is new. Eh, it's new, but uh, we remains to be seen what qualitative difference it makes to the actual outcome of the war. The first part of that question was really interesting. What was that again? The advent of social media. So how, how do you view the advent of social media and in the bigger picture, the internet factoring into the wars? Well, the internet's the a whole different thing. I mean, a whole different thing. The internet's just, you know, it's, it's part of the structure of modern life. That's just, it's, it's everywhere. Um, it's like saying, how do I view the universe? <laughs> uh, but social media, clearly its primary effect. I know it has positive you know, uh, uh, outcomes if there's an earthquake and you want to find survivors or things like that or you're looking for a, you know, a somebody lost in combat. I know you can have smallish small uh, positive outcomes, but clearly the fundamental impact of social media has been to increase the speed at which hate moves around the world. I, just, I don't think there's 
even any doubt about that. Um, it has increased the, the virulence of our disputes, um, both domestic and international. Uh, and uh, it is just the speed at which lies and hate, I should have added lies to that, lies and hate move around the world. Um, and lies and hate are tools of war and politics and manipulation and demagoguery and all the rest of that. Do we have one here in the crowd? All right, I have one uh, right over here. Professor, I have a question about two generals. After Gettysburg, Ge General Lee, Robert E. Lee, basically wanted to regroup, and he was basically glorified for not giving up. His number one supporting general, General Longstreet, basically recognized attrition and felt that after Gettysburg, the Confederate cause was a lost cause. So my question is, was Longstreet, who was vilified, insightful at least, and are there other examples of key leaders, generals or statesmen, stateswomen, who recognized attrition but were not able to convince the person in charge that it was a lost cause? Okay. Um, first, I don't usually play the general's game because I'm just not qualified. I'm not qualified. Um, you know, you, students ask you all the time, who's better, Patton or Montgomery? I'm not a professional officer. How am I supposed to judge these things? And it's kind of a fool's game. So, uh, but, but your question's different. Yours is about um, an underling. I, I, I have to go back and say, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, about other examples, but while well, I'm still trying to think of other examples, uh, let me say, I think that the big gap between Longstreet, who I think most military historians regard, I'm not, I'm not a specialist in that, so I don't join that. For them, it's not a game. They're pros at it. But they, they regard Longstreet as the more effective and superior, I think, commander, generally speaking. But Lee dominates the popular imagination, and that's all because of the lost cause. That's the elevation of Lee as the face of the lost cause. So, um, you know, we had, a, we, had a, we had a great, and it also sort of explains, we had this genius commander which reflected the soul of our own genius as a southern people, and on and on, all that stuff, right? Um, and we lost, why? And you, you heard this from Germans after the Second World War too. Sometimes like in the early 50s where veterans would get together and they'd, you know, raise a, a beer stein and you know, all this, all this forgotten comment. And then after the third or fourth stein, <laughs> You know, they start talking about it, and the Germans would always complain to the Americans or the British that, well, you know, yeah, yeah, we were better soldiers, but you had more planes and tanks and aircraft. Duh. I mean, that's the point. <laughs> that's the whole point. Is your operational dexterity is not enough, and we're going to crush you for doing this again inside a single generation. That's... <laughs> You know, but you hear, that, you hear the same thing from, from, from sort of Confederate apologists was like, you know, we were brilliant, our armies were better, we whipped them damn Yankees, you know. One good rebel was worth, fought five damn Yankees. No, he wasn't. 
Not after the Yankees learned how to shoot and how to ride and there were like, you know, a couple hundred thousand more of them and the Confederacy was crushed by blockade and a long attritional war. Uh, you know, the Anaconda Plan and all, all of that stuff. I, 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 I'm not a Civil War specialist, but, but um, I'm sure there are other examples to answer your question. I honestly can't think of them off the top of my head. Um, but yes, uh, very often, it, well, I, I, I did just remember one. Uh, in 1941, when the Germans were planning the invasion of the Soviet Union, Barbarossa, which I like to tell students originally, the original code name was, doesn't sound as grand at all, Operation Otto. <laughs> and they got renamed Barbarossa. But um, they were the logistics officers in the, in, in the general staff. The logistics officers were say, they were asked, you know, can you support, what, what can you support uh, when, we invade, when we attack? And if I remember the statistics correctly, they said a single thrust 500 kilometers deep. You know what the Germans attacked? Three thrusts planning to go 800 kilometers deep each. They don't listen to their own logistics officers because the whole German military culture of the officer corps was attack, attack, attack. Envelopment, Kanai, Schlieffen plan. I mean, Schlieffen did the whole series called the Kanai Studies which led to the, led to the Shlifa. Kanai, right? Hannibal is going to uh, encircle the Roman army and kill something like 72,000 legionaries and so on. It's the most catastrophic defeat in, the, in, in Roman history to that point. Uh, it led to human sacrifice, including child sacrifice by Romans, sort of to appreciate the angry gods that had led them to this and all of the rest of that. Well, maybe the Germans should have read the rest of the history. Carthage lost the war. Hannibal went up and down the Italian peninsula for 18 years, unable to, every time the Romans came out and faced him in the field, he whipped them, because he was tactically superior. They had superior logistics, they had superior uh, walled defenses, they had, you know, um, they won, they won. It took 18 years and they won the war. And then they went over and destroyed Carthage, destroyed it. Destroyed them in Spain and then they, there are other examples, but that's, uh, the Germans in 41. I think, um, just general after general after general. Uh, Manstein was a particular, even after Kursk, Manstein was still, give me the panzers, let me run free with the panzers. And actually Hitler, who wasn't always wrong compared to his generals, said no, the time for, I think I'm paraphrasing, but the time for fancy maneuver with tanks is over. He was right. And then you revert to defense, but then he didn't do that very well either, so. We have our last question of the evening is right there in the back. So, uh, Dr. Nolan, thank you for your presentation. It's, uh, I, I'm wondering, in a democratic society, or a predominantly democratic society, uh, our strategic objectives are often usually set by elected representatives. And so the narrative of the short war, the surgical strike, the, these are likely to remain. Yeah. Uh, so I'm kind of curious uh, what your thoughts are on how we might change the thinking. Uh, I think your first point is more, is more likely, that these are going to remain, these are in the civic culture, these are in the politicians' interests, and because they're in the politicians' interests, and I'm sorry if I give offense, but it's in the interest of a number of generals to then present plans that speak to the politicians' interests. I can give you a short word, sir. Probably not, but I, I have a plan. Um, so look, I'm an historian. That doesn't mean I deal in uh, political or operational advice. It means, frankly, mostly I deal in tragedy. This is the tragedy of military history. Um, and it will, you know, it, it will repeat the way Mark Twain said, you know, it'll rhyme. 
Uh, it, it doesn't repeat exactly, but it, you know, it, it rhymes because the rhymes are the outward manifestations of our human nature finding different expression in different historical periods and you know, under different national circumstances and so forth. But it's not an American problem. This is, a, this is, this is us. When I say us, I mean us, the species. And we all do it. Okay, not the Quakers. <laughs>